You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Have you ever felt like that? And prayed a prayer like that? It's not, it's not hard to, to imagine or to remember, perhaps, situations in which you just, you just wish that God would bring this whole story to an end. Because from the perspective of where you are, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. God's people have, have felt this, this experience, the, exp- the silence of God. The silence of God. It's, it's a, an experience common to believers, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the history of the church. All you have to do is look around and you can hear it. You can feel God's silence. You look out in the world and, and you see evil people getting away with stuff. Getting away with stuff and seeming to profit from it. You can look in your heart and in your actions. And you can see those same vices, those same things that you do that hurt the people that you love. And, and you wonder where exactly the Holy Spirit is and how he's forming you and how he's changing you. And when you seem to keep doing the same things over and over again. You look, of course, in your body and you see the counting of the clock, the weariness of the world, words like cancer or COVID or allergies or arthritis. And you just wonder, what's going on? Where is God? Why don't you just come down and fix this and end this story? This feeling of absence, it's a longing for God to show up and act, to stop being silent. It's not wrong. It is, in fact, part of the life of faith. What becomes wrong is when we we take that silence and we, we think of it as proof that God's not listening or isn't there or that he doesn't care. But hope, Christian hope, it prays in the face of God's silence. That's your first blank today. Hope prays in the face of God's silence. That's what 64, Psalms, Isaiah 64 is. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. See, this is a faith that knows Not just that God is absent, but also knows who God is. And desires that the whole world know who God is. Because God being present with his people, God being present in the world, has always, from the beginning of the story to the end, has been the goal of God's creation. It is the salvation of the world. And this prayer says, God, please tear the heavens open and come down and show up And so that the people who hate you might know who you are, might know you as the good and just God, might tremble at your presence, recognizing the futility of their own empires and their own world and their own hopes, that the nation might know that God is good and God is just, and that when he is present, things will be right again. 
So if that's Christian hope, it prays in the face of God's silence, but, but knows who God is, and prays that everyone knows who God is, where does that faith come from? Where, does it, where is it born, and, and how does it stay forever, really, and throughout our lives in the face of God's silence? Well, verse 3 and 4 kind of help us see this. Look at verse 3. By the way, your, your Roman, my Roman numerals got messed up, so yours might say point number 4 or 6 and then point number 7. That should be point number 1 and 2. But Isaiah 64 verse 3 says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen God beside you, who acts for those who wait for him. Hope here is not like a vague conviction that things will turn out okay. Or that God's, you know, he, he, he's, he's got things under control. It's, it's a specific hope that looks back to the past and says God acted once. He acted once, he came down, he did an awesome thing. And when he did that, we weren't looking for it. We weren't ready for it. We didn't even recognize it. We didn't anticipate it. When you did awesome things we did not look for, you came down and shook the world. And so hope, hope is born and it is sustained, which is your second blank. Hope is sustained by the memory of God's action. And perhaps we might say more than memory, by the rehearsal by reminding yourself and re-speaking to yourself what God has done that makes him trustworthy, what God has done that makes you believe that when he comes, things will be right again. It's that rehearsal, that memory that sustains hope in the present, that sustains hope to keep on praying in the midst of God's silence. Because let's face it, the reality is that hope is just waiting. Waiting. That's what the end of that passage says. Who acts for those who wait for him. And waiting seems pretty unimpressive. Pretty difficult. Especially for Americans. We, we are a very optimistic, hardworking people. And we like to, to do, take things under our control and, and fix them. If there's a problem, we try to tackle it. And waiting, well, it runs against the grain of our nature. Waiting means we, well, we don't do. <laughs> it means we aren't the ones who are fixing this. And this runs against the grain of our nature. Why, why wait when we can act now, when we can fix this now, when we can make our world better now? And while, of course, it's true that we can do things that make the world a little bit better for our neighbors, we can love our neighbor, and that makes a difference in the world. But when things happen, like pandemic, like cancer diagnosis, like civil unrest, like an earthquake, we are reminded of a terrible truth that all our striving leads us to forget. And that is that we are not in control. We are not in control. We are not masters of our fate. We are not masters of our future. We are not in control. We are left to wait for the God who is in control. And this has an impact on the way we wait. Because the third thing that hope does is it turns us away from ourselves. This act of waiting for someone else means we're not looking at ourselves. And this works in two capacities. Look at, look at let Isaiah tell us what they are. Isaiah 64, verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, 
you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. See, what hope does when it's waiting is it brings us to to terms with the futility of our doing and our striving. And it turns us away from our acts of righteousness. It doesn't stop us from doing that. Notice in verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. There is stuff to do. But that stuff we do is not stuff to hope in. Because when we take a long look at it, we, we see what he sees. That even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We can do well, but we cannot fix this world. And hope has turned our eyes away from this reality. Instead of despairing and saying, look, every time we try to make some progress, we screw things up again. Or the world comes to get us. Every time we think we got this control of nature, something new comes and shows us we are not in control of the world. And instead of despair, hope gives us repentance, which is what turning really means. Repentance really means it's turning. Hope turns us away from ourselves to God's righteousness. See, hope has turned ourselves away from our sin and its power to define us, from our failures, from its power to define us, but even from our successes. Because when we come face to face with our own limitations and our own hypocrisy, our self-pity, our entitlement, we see how we build all our idols, all our, all our best idols, out of our best things. All, all the idols that have the power over our hearts, they're built out of things like our virtues, our families, our jobs, our politics, our nation. We take what's best and we make it an idol. And we forget that these things, even these, will fall apart. We all fade like a leaf, Isaiah tells us, all of us. And our iniquities, our faults, take us away like the wind. So we've turned away, hope has turned us away. It's it's being sustained by God's action in the past. And that has turned us away from hoping in ourselves and in our present. But this leads us to, well, a certain way of understanding affliction and suffering. A unique approach to understanding what what evil is in the world. See, when a pandemic comes and upsets our world, when markets crash, when congregations fall apart, when relationships crumble, when suffering comes, we naturally turn to God and we ask, why? Why? That's a very natural thing to do. It is, in fact, the question of faith. Why is a question of faith? But it's a question of why that is addressed to a God we call Father. Father, and that is immensely important. Look in the, in the blank on your second page, Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. It, it's hard for us to recognize how unique this is, by the way, because in the Old Testament, God is not called Father very often. Jesus, Jesus actually takes that language and makes it far more common. So we're used to calling God Father because Jesus taught us to. But in the Old Testament, the, calling God Father was not at all common. It's very rare, and so you've got to pay close attention when he does it. So when Isaiah says, 
But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burnt by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. This is probably the most mysterious thing about hope, is that it accepts even the darkest adversity as the loving discipline of God. It accepts adversity as God's discipline, God's loving discipline. And this is radical, and this is, it is important that we understand this rightly, because it is the beginning of an answer to the question of suffering, but it is not the whole answer. Evil and suffering, when it comes upon us, it has the ring of pointlessness, of futility to it. We ask why, and our hearts tell us there is no reason why. It just is what it is. And we say that. It is what it is. And even in Isaiah's time, he's looking at the destruction of God's city, the destruction of God's temple. But Isaiah, looking through hope, sees that even something so catastrophic as the destruction of God's nation and God's people and God's temple, even that has meaning. Even if he can't say all that what it is, even if he can't say all that it is, he looks to God as the father, and as a four-year-old trusts their father, but doesn't understand all the reasons why, we look to God and call him father, knowing not that it is what it is, but that it is not what it one day will be. This moment is not what the world one day will be. And I want you to think about that the next time you hear yourself saying it is what it is. No. It is not yet what it one day will be. You are not yet who you one day will be. And right now, your father is through all the things that you don't like, all the onerous things, all the difficult things, all the things that cause you distress, hope and faith allows you to see these things not as arbitrary, not as angry judgment, but as a father forming his child through discipline, as a potter pressing and squeezing and shaping clay into the image that he makes it. Now, here's the thing that happens, though. When we, when, when we get this and we, and we get it wrong, and we forget, we forget something, and we forget Isaiah's last verse, that is when people say, oh, okay, all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So, cheer up. Stop crying. It's all going to work out in the end. You shouldn't be mourning right now because God's going to make this better. That's not Christian hope. That's trivial, trite, hallmark movie hope. No. Christian hope, it recognizes the reality of suffering and it never denies the experience of God's silence. It never denies, even though it knows that deep, in some deep hidden way, even this adversity can be God's loving direction and discipline. Nevertheless, God's silence is still real right now. And we still experience it. Even be precisely because hope, it remembers God's action. It remembers that when God acted, the mountains melted and everyone saw. And it yearns for God to do it again. Even as it knows that whatever's going on right now, God is in control of it. And so in verse 12, 
It once again prays, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And we've come full circle because hope prays again in the face of God's silence. Hope keeps praying. It keeps talking to the God that we know as Father. It keeps addressing him and looking to him. This is the point of Jesus' repeated admonition to stay awake. Staying awake means not giving in to the temptation to call your afflictions pointless. It means not giving in to the temptation to think that history is just running on as one show of a madman. But that it actually will, one day, be brought to a consummation in Jesus. A consummation for which we wait and in which we pray. And so it's okay to ask why. It's okay to ask how long. It's okay to ask, will you keep doing these things? Will you keep silent? Because hope knows that it is not yet what it one day will be. So this day, as Christians, we live in this hope. This is the anatomy of hope that Isaiah has laid out before us. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Rend the heavens and come down. Make your name known to the nations. Because we know that when Jesus is confessed by all nations, then all things will be reconciled to their maker. The chaos of this creation, the chaos of our world, will be held together. And it is being held together in our Lord. And in him alone is it going to be redeemed. We remember. We remember the events like his arrival on a donkey into the gates of Jerusalem. We remember the events like his birth to a virgin mother in Bethlehem as God's unlooked-for action, which leveled the mountains and made plains out of the valleys. We recognize those unlooked-for actions as the place where the righteous king came to bring salvation to the world. And that there, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, there we find our hope in those actions of God. And that allows us to turn, to turn away from our own sin and the guilt that it brings upon us, but also to turn away from our virtues and our ambitions and our hopes and our prides and all our good idols as well. To turn away from the things that we see around us that give us hope and turn to Jesus as the only righteous one, as the only righteous king. And that finally enables us to accept, to accept affliction even this affliction, even what's going on right now, as God's unlooked-for formation, his sculpting us as a good father into the image of our brother, Jesus, sculpting us into the image of his son, who, who willingly accepted the suffering, the destruction of the temple of his body. He is the suffering son. And when God says that he's forming us into that image, it involves this affliction, this day. That is the meaning of it. Because we know that in the temple of Jesus' body, and its destruction, God is reconciling the world to himself. So whatever is weighing upon us, whatever is weighing upon you, no matter how dark, no matter how hard, no matter how pointless it seems to be, hope allows us to see it, to acknowledge it as God's silence, and nevertheless to pray, Come, Lord Jesus, rend the heavens and come down. Because we live in this conviction, in the words of Paul, God is faithful. 
And by him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. And so with that conviction we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord. Maranatha. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.